there's a there's a joke that DJ James Kennedy used to say, and I've probably shared it before. The guy gets up in the morning and he's praying, Lord, send me to someone who needs Jesus. Put someone in my path who I can talk to about Jesus. And he leaves his work and he gets on the bus and a guy sits down next to him and starts to cry and cry. And he looks to this guy and says, I need God. Do you know who God is? I need God. And the guy says, hold on a second. He goes, Lord, is this the guy you want me to talk to? <laughs> and I kind of felt that with how this youth thing is working out. We've been praying for one and we've been talking to the district and we've gotten no response. No one wants to do it. And so this couple comes up to visit Taylor because they're friends with her from years gone by and they've come up a number of times before and to visit and they actually stay with us while they're visiting with Taylor. And the one weekend he was here, I really didn't know him that well and he was telling me that you know he graduated from um, what used to be called Zion Bible College and which is where Tiff is, and he's looking to do ministry, and, and he's looking to do youth ministry, and I'm thinking, okay, Lord, is this the guy we're praying about? And that's when I prayed about that for a while. Man, just a coincidence. And then kept praying about it, and actually I had another name in my mind, and, but every time I pray, that name came to my mind. And I felt like God saying, okay, you've been praying about it. He's there. You have to actually ask him. And so, and the rest is history. So, and you'll hear more about how God's working. As Anna said, there's other things that are working out in the background that were totally separate from this, but actually are kind of dovetailing together for this. So we're, we kind of see God saying, okay, it's about time. He's gonna do something, so I'm excited. Revelation chapter 13. We finished chapter 12 last week, and so let's do a, a Reader's Digest version of what we've learned so far. We had the seven seals, which is the beginning. Then we had an intermission between the sixth and seventh seal. There was a time gap there, or something that God put in as an intermission. And then the seventh seal actually produced the seven trumpets. We're, now we're in an intermission, another intermission between the sixth and seventh trumpets. We're still waiting for the seven bowls to begin, and the seven bowls will begin with the seven trumpets, but we're not there yet. We're still in the, uh, the intermission phase. They haven't flicked the lights yet and said, last call, we're intermission. And we're gonna, last, now last week we introduced Satan, and we introduced his four conflicts with God. And now we're gonna see the introduction of, in chapter 13 of the Antichrist. Revelation 13 verse one says, and the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. Now, some King James and older versions will say, I stood, indicating that it, it, you might think it's John standing on the shore. But newer versions and textbooks all seem to believe that it's not John, but it's actually a dragon. And we saw last week, what, who was the image of the dragon? The dragon was Satan. It actually tells us that in chapter 12. And now he is standing on the shore of the sea, and the sea represents the Gentile nations. We talked about the Jewish nation last week. Now he's talking about the Gentile nations. And this next verse in, in chapter 17 gives us insight into the meaning of the sea. Revelation 17, 15 says, then the angel said to me, the waters where the prostitute is sitting represents masses of people from every nation and language. So now the dragon, remember last week he got kicked out of heaven. 
And now he's summoning all his demons to work on the Gentile nations in the world. And from the, from the Gentile nations, he will bring forth his leader, which is the Antichrist. Going back to Revelation 13, 1, it continues and says, I saw a beast come out of the sea with 10 horns and seven heads, with 10 crowns on his, hor- on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. Now, the beast is the final government authority, specifically the government that the devil institutes in the last days. And the Antichrist is going to be his leader. The same government as pictured in Daniel back in Daniel chapter 7. And it says in verse 24, the 10 horns and the 10 kings will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones, and he will subdue three kings. He will speak against the most high and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. So the 10 horns, seven heads, and 10 crowns, just like the dragon we saw last week, these symbolize power and authority. So God has basically given him a lot of power, and now he has risen to a point of authority. The last week, the dragon had his head crowned. In Revelation 12, verse 3, it says, Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns on his head. This verse says the, the horns are now, the crowns are now on the horns. Horns with crowns symbolize royal power, power that only truly belongs to Christ. And that's why we see the blasphemous name. He is now equating himself to Christ. It doesn't say what his name is, but it's probably one that is a claim that he is God. What other way to blaspheme God than to say you are God? And so he has this, this crown on his horn, which is a symbol of royal power. God has that royal power, not man. But the devil is now doing that with the Antichrist or the devil, and now he is claiming himself to be God. When, you got, when the devil kicked out, got kicked out of heaven, why did he get kicked out of heaven? For calling himself God. He equated himself with the Most High. The seven heads represent the seven hills of Rome, a reference to, at that moment, the most powerful city on the earth. Revelation 17, verse 9 says, And now understand this, the seven heads of the beast represent the seven hills of the city where this woman rules. So the ten horns represent ten different kingdoms. In other words, like a United States of Europe. And I, I don't know about you, but when they, had, when they did the European Union several years ago, I kind of thought that was part of what was going on. England or Britain kind of broke away from that. But that's, that's the beginning of what is going to happen. In other words, it's a revived Roman Empire. Before taking, He's going to revive himself as a leader of these ten nations, and he's going to take over from there as a world dictator. It can also mean that he is a king of those kingdoms. Revelation 17.9 again says, and now understand this. The seven heads of the beast represent seven hills of the city where the woman rules. They also represent seven kings. So now we're getting kind of deep in the woods here. Verse 2 says, The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave his, the beast his power and his throne and great authority. So we see the dragon is the devil. The beast is the Antichrist, and the dragon endues the beast with his 
supernatural power. And it's not only representing the one world government, but also he is now the king of that one world government. And he is the eighth king that is gonna be mentioned later. In Revelation 17, 11, says the scarlet beast that was alive and then died is the eighth king. So he is the final king, earthly king, during that tribulation. And he's gonna gain control of the world's economic, political, and religious systems. He's gonna to refer to himself as the Christ, which is the blasphemous name that's probably on his, on his crown. And he's referred to in the Bible, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, he says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will come, not come, until the rebellion occurs, and what? The man of lawlessness is revealed. Another term for the beast. In 1 John 2, 18, it says, dear children, this is the last hour, and as if you have heard, the Antichrist is coming, and even now many Antichrists have come. So there's a difference between the Antichrist and many Antichrists. The Bible tells us that there are gonna be many Antichrists from the beginning of time all throughout history. But the Antichrist is gonna raise, be raised at the last point, and the enemy is gonna, the devil is gonna endue him with his power. And what he's gonna do is he's gonna break the treaty, and what happens after he breaks the treaty, the first three and a half years are peaceful, relatively peaceful. When he breaks the treaty, now he becomes very ruthless, and a lot of the commentary, uh, commentaries that I read say he will become a wild animal in his cruelty, which is represented by the animals that, that are there, the leopard, the bear, and the lion. Now in history, if you read your Bible in the, in the Old Testament in Daniel, leopard represents Greece, the bear represents the Medo-Persian Empire, and the lion represents Babylon. Going back to Daniel's dream in Daniel 7, Daniel said, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me were four wild, the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the other, came out of the sea. The first was like a lion. It had the wings of an eagle. Verse five, and there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. And verse six says, after that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And the final word power is, world power is gonna be rooted in the previous powers that were initiated under one leader. In other words, all those three different leaders that you saw in the Old Testament and Daniel are now gonna be under one, one person is gonna have all that authority. Revelation 13, three. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Now the beast remembers the Antichrist. The beast will be known the world over. Everyone's gonna know who he is and everyone's gonna see him suffer this head wound. We don't know if it's a shot, we don't know what, what it is, if it's an accident, but the world is gonna see what appears to be his death and his resurrection. But the Bible says it seems as though he had a fatal wound. It didn't say that he had a fatal wound. So the, the people are gonna think he died, but in reality it's gonna be bad, but it won't be fatal. But he's gonna pretend that it is fatal and he's gonna pretend that he was resurrected just like Christ was. Revelation 17, 11 again, this scarlet beast that was alive and then died is the eighth king. It says, seem to have, the world's gonna think he's dead, but he's not. Satan has the power, but not the power of life. He can't resurrect anyone. Only God can resurrect people. The world's gonna think he died, 
the devil's going to heal him because he's going to have that power. And the world's going to think instead of being healed, he was resurrected. And that's what's going to make the world follow after him, thinking he is the Messiah. The world's going to think it's a resurrection, and the world will be deceived at that point. If we know what the Bible says God does, everything that God does, the enemy tries to copy or falsify. But this he can't. He cannot duplicate life. But he will trick everyone into thinking that he did. And the world is going to follow him. They will now believe the lie of the devil, and they will now believe the Antichrist, the beast, is actually God. And this is fulfilling what Paul said back in 2 Thessalonians 2. It says, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. For this reason, God sent them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie so that all, who will, so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. And what happens? The devil is now getting what he has always wanted from the beginning. Verse four, it says, men worship the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worship the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? Now he's finally receiving the worship that he's always wanted to receive. What did the devil tempt Jesus to do in the garden? Matthew 4, verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I'll give to you, he said, if you will bow down and what? Worship me. The devil has always wanted worship. And a lot of times I think when we sin, we're actually worshiping because we're doing exactly what God said not to do. The devil didn't have the authority to give him the kingdoms of the world. The Bible says those kingdoms belong to God. So he was lying about what he was going to give him, but he wanted him to worship. And Jesus always responded with the word of God. And people who may not be idolaters and worshipers of any kind of graven image, by their refusal to accept Christ, they are actually in turn worshiping the devil. They're doing exactly what the devil wanted him to do. I used to wonder, why are there so many cults? Why are there so many false religions out there? If they're, if they're already not saved, why do they exist? Why, does the, why do the enemy need those things? Well, because everybody needs to worship something. Everybody, man has an innate nature to worship something. You either worship God of the Bible, you worship a false God, or you worship things. But everybody worships something. And what better way to think that someone is really in tune with God than being in a false religion, worshiping whatever that God happens to be. The enemy, it doesn't matter who you worship for him. As long as you're not worshiping the God of the universe, it doesn't matter to him. You're equally lost. And the enemy's only real believers, his only enemy at that time are going to be believers, and he's going to kill them. 
Revelation 2.10, going back to the beginning, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. Verse 13 says, you did not renounce your faith in me even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Going back to Revelation 12, 11, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. If you are a Christian during this time, you will be martyred. Revelation, going back to Revelation 13, verse 15, he was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the beast or the image to be killed. Remember the beast sets up an image of himself in the temple and says, you gotta worship that. Kind of like, you know, what they did in the Old Testament. You gotta worship this or you're gonna be suffering persecution. And most people are gonna fall for that. They're gonna worship him because they think he's God. They raised him from the dead. He's, he's resurrected. But those who are Christians are going to be killed. They're gonna be hunted down and martyred. It says, all who refuse to worship the image are gonna be killed. Going back to verse five. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. Now the phrase given a mouth means to be an eloquent, eloquent speaker or communicator. This guy's gonna be a good orator. He's gonna speak and it's gonna sound like honey. And people are gonna follow him. Every dictator has begun their rise to power by persuasive and powerful words. You look at Hitler in the 30s, everyone was hanging on his every word. Even Mao, everything they said, and, and Chavez, everything they said sounded good. It's what we want, it's what we want. This guy's gonna be the same way. He's gonna speak proud words and blasphemies and people are gonna believe it and they're gonna follow after him. 42 months is, most assume it's the last half of the tribulation. He will rise to power in the full first half, make peace with Israel in the first half, gain the power of the 10 nations, and then in the second, in the middle seven years, in the middle of the seven years, he breaks a treaty, takes control of all the nations of the world, sets a statue of himself up in the temple, and demands worship for himself and he rules for the last 42 months, which is the last three and a half years, and he rules with utter, an utter iron fist until Jesus comes back. And since he was given this ability that wasn't natural for him, how did he get it? And since he's speaking proud words and blasphemies, the power had to have been given to him from the enemy, from Satan. The Antichrist is literally a puppet of Satan and Satan's pulling the marionette strings on him. Verse six again, he opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. Now, there's three different things that he's talking about. To blaspheme God means to speak against the truthfulness of his word. I was reading something either on Facebook or Twitter about, and someone was saying that the Bible was full of fairy tales and lies and all that kind of stuff. That's what they're talking about. 
to blaspheme God is to speak against the truthfulness of God's word. We see that today. People and even churches downgrading the, the inspiration of the Bible. It's a good book, but it's just a book among many books. When people are looking for a church, I'll tell them, go and talk to the pastor, ask him two questions. Do you believe the Bible is the inerrant, unfallible word of God? And then ask them, do you believe that Jesus was in fact God? If they answer no to either of those questions, then you look, move on to another church. Because those are the two basic doctrines. If they don't believe the Bible, then they're not a church. They can call themselves a church, but they're not a, a biblical church. And if they don't believe that Jesus is God, again, they're not a church. They're a social club. Those are the two most important things. And to blaspheme God's word means you're blaspheming God. To slander his name is to speak against the nature of God. In other words, to deny that he has love and mercy and faithfulness, grace and holy and righteousness. So you slander God's word saying the Bible's not true and then you slander who God is. God's not faithful. God doesn't love you. God hates you. All those things. God has no grace and no mercy. Where's God in all this hardship? That's to slander God. To slander his dwelling place means he's speaking against, against the reality of heaven and against the need and fulfillment of the atonement of Christ. In other words, you're not sinners. Everyone's going to get to heaven, or, or if there even is a heaven, maybe you just die and go in the ground. You don't need to have Jesus die for your sins. You don't, you, you're good enough. You're going to make it. To slander those who live in heaven means he is defaming all those who died for Christ and died in Christ. If you have loved ones that died in Christ, you slander them by saying they lived their life for no purpose. What good was it to, for them to live for God and then they died in the end? Their works and the sacrifices they made for God don't count at all. Why do all the things we do here to get rewards in heaven? There's no rewards. Everything you do here is worthless. It doesn't mean anything. When you, if you even get to heaven if there's such a place. They wasted their lives believing in a God like that. You know, I've always said, and my wife says this, if I'm right, I'm good. If I'm wrong, I'm still good because we lived right. If if you don't believe and you're wrong, there's hell. And if you don't believe and there's no heaven, what's the purpose? God's word says there is a purpose for us being here. And so even if, I'm, if, if for some reason Christianity is not true, my life is still a blessing and I've done everything I can to love God and it's great. But if you're wrong and you don't serve God, the consequences are much worse than if I'm right. Now, there's going to be one Antichrist, capital A, during the tribulation. But there are many Antichrists, little a, today, doing the same thing that he's doing, but on a much smaller scale. 
it's those that we need to watch out for today because we're not gonna be here as believers. We're not gonna be here for the tribulation. We're not gonna see the Antichrist. We're not gonna know who he is. But there are a lot of other Antichrists walking around today trying to infiltrate and change your life. First John 2.18 says, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. There's always gonna be and always have been people who deny sin, they deny Christ, they deny the authority of the Bible. There's always people out there doing it. And the Bible says we have to be careful of those folks. We can't entertain those thinking, that thinking, that, those thoughts. Now, I'm, I'm the kind of guy that I don't want to put my head in the a, in a sand. We know they're out there. We don't study them. But we should be well enough versed in what God's word says to know when a fake one comes. The, the treasury example, treasury agent example, you've probably all heard it. They don't, when you're a treasury agent looking for counterfeit money, they don't train you on looking at counterfeit money. They train you by memorizing what a real dollar looks like, what real money looks like. And they want you to know it so well that as soon as you see a fake one, no matter how good it is, you're gonna know it's fake. And that's how we should be as Christians. We need to know what the truth is. We don't have to study every other thing out there. But we know, need to know this well enough that when any of those things come, we know instantly it's not true. We shouldn't have to study it. We shouldn't have to look it up at that moment. We should know it. And the Holy Spirit will help you when that happens. Why do you think cults are full of people that grew up in church? Because they didn't know their Bible. And someone came to the door, knocked on the door, and flowery language and it sounds good and it, everything just seems to line up. They didn't know their Bible enough to know what they were being taught was not true. Now in the US, get ready with a cat photo. You can't swing a dead cat and not hit a Bible. They're everywhere. Every store sells Bibles. Amazon Tyler just told me he got his new Bible off Amazon. They're everywhere. You can't go anywhere without seeing a Bible. U.S. Christians have no excuse for not knowing their Bible. If you don't know your Bible, you are going to be led astray. You need to know what it says. You don't have to know every intricacy of it yet, but you need to study the basics so that when someone comes to you and knocks on your door and starts talking to you about this God or that God, it doesn't sound good enough to draw you away. When we lived in Pittsburgh, right after I got saved, I was, I've always been like kind of a confrontational kind of guy. Every, every summer, Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, I can't remember which one, would go down, up and down our street, knocking on every door. And I'm like, bring them on, come on. And so they came to the house, I said, well, come on in, come on in, come on in. Let me grab my Bible here for a minute. And I started talking to them and sharing them scriptures. And what I did is, most of them, none of them believe in the deity of Christ. So I went through and I highlighted all my deity scriptures in blue with a reference where the next one was. And I started doing that to him and I went to Hebrews and, and first John. And after a while he said, you know, we gotta go. We gotta go. And so they left and next week they skipped our house. <laughs> and every week after that they kept skipping our house. Because they knew once the people heard the truth they'll realize that what they're doing isn't true. 
but you need to know that when they come to your door. Now, you don't have to invite them in, but you need to know that when they start talking to you, you need to know what the Bible says versus what they say. Going back to Revelation 13, 7 says, he was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. So now the beast has been granted permission to make war against the believers. He's gonna kill them and control the world. He has power over everything right now. Now this isn't a military campaign. Like he's not sending soldiers out to get him but it's a systematic hostility towards believers. To conquer them means to give up their faith or face death. He's trying to get people to recant. He's trying to get people to say, oh, you're right, I don't believe. And then when they don't do that, then they're killed. The phrase, it is given, means he doesn't have absolute power. He only has the power which God allows him to have. How many know that? The devil has power, but he only has the power that God allows him to have, and he only has so much of it. Look at Job. God gave Job free reign except for, and he would give him exceptions. So the devil didn't have any power except what God allowed him to have at that particular moment. And every martyr only brings them into the presence of the Lord. Their tribulation will be over, their physical life, and now they're gonna enjoy peace and joy. And what's happening is, the enemy doesn't realize that when he's killing these people, that he's actually bringing them into the presence of God. He thinks he's winning the fight. He's winning, he thinks he's winning because he's killing Christians who come against him. But he's not. Yeah, they're coming against him, but he only has power for those seven years, and God's gonna take that power back in seven years. But he thinks he's winning. Every time he kills someone, he thinks, well, there's one less person to, to oppose me. But he doesn't realize that the only person that's gonna oppose him is Jesus at the end of his seven years. The beast's authority now goes from the 10 nations to the whole world. Verse eight says, all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have been not written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. His power goes from the 10 nations now extended throughout the whole world. He declares himself to be God. He erects a statue of himself in the temple and he's been given supernatural powers from the demonic world. And those who are deceived by those powers are going to worship him. That's why we don't worship miracles. How many know that? We don't worship signs and wonders. They're great if they point you to Christ. I don't know if it happens so much today, but years ago, they used to have these news articles about someone seeing the face of Jesus, like in a potato chip, or this statue starting to cry, or whatever it was. You know what the test is for that? Does that point you to Jesus? Does that miracle make you wanna know Jesus? Or does that miracle wanna make you know that potato chip? Or do you wanna go worship that statue that's bleeding? Every miracle should be looked at as Every miracle points you to Christ. It's supposed to focus your attention on the God of the miracle, not the miracle itself. But people are gonna look at the miracles and now they're gonna worship the Antichrist because 
They believe that he's God. They're worshiping the miracles. They're going after the miracles. Look at what happened to Moses when he threw his staff down, he became a snake. The bad guys threw their staff down, it becomes a snake. We can't follow miracles all the time. Miracles have to point you to Christ. If it doesn't point you to Christ, then don't pay attention to the miracle. The enemy's religion will be one that teaches that we are all gods. What was the, the enemy, what was his lie to Eve? Genesis 3, 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The enemy is going to say, you know, you can be like God. Worship me, you can be just like me. And the lie carries on today through humanistic philosophies and the New Age movement. Everyone's a God, right? Everyone can be God. And that lie that we have today is preparing us for what the enemy is going to say then. You can be God. You can be just like God. Now, Jesus said that people are going to reject him, reject Jesus, but accept the Antichrist. John 5.43 says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you'll accept him. You know, it's funny. People don't believe the gospel now. But they're going to believe this fake gospel during that time. And it happens today. People don't believe the gospel today, but they'll believe anything that comes down the pike. They'll believe that New Age movement. They'll believe that fortune tower, that palm reader, those tarot cards. They'll believe all this stuff, but they won't believe this. Again, because somebody need, they need to worship something, and the enemy is going to direct their attention to anything other than the truth. So if you want to go with the tarot card thing, go for it. That's where the enemy's at. The enemy doesn't care if you worship the tarot cards or not. The world does not believe the truth, but they'll believe the lie. Now this goes back to what we talked about hearing the gospel now, not getting saved. If you hear it now, you reject it, not getting saved after the rapture. Going back to 2 Thessalonians 2, 9. It says, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan. The lawless one is the, anti, or the, is the Antichrist. According to the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. And in every evil, every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and be saved, past tense. If you're here and you hear the gospel, you're online, you hear the gospel, and you refuse to love it, you refuse to, and you reject the truth, and you're not saved, verse 11 says, for, those, for that reason, God will send them a powerful delusion so that they will believe this lie in the tribulation period. And so that all will be condemned, what? Who have not believed the truth today, but have delighted in wickedness today. The world today doesn't accept the Christ, but they're going to bow to the Antichrist at some point. Now, if you think that you're going to be able to take a stand then, well, I'm not going to get saved then, but I, I'll, I'll stand against him in the, in the, in the tribulation. I'll, I'll do that. You're not, you're not going to be able to do that. If you can't do it now, when there's no persecution, no trouble, being a Christian is the easiest thing in the world. If you can't do that now, you are never going to do it when you face death. Not only that, 
You won't want to. Why do I say that? Because if you can't stand for Christ now, what makes you think you'll be doing it then? You think you'll be brave then? If you can't, someone says, if you can't kneel for God in the church, you never can stand for God in the world. If you think you're going to be brave now, or brave then, you're not brave now. It takes bravery to stand up against what the world is telling you today. It takes bravery to do the right thing today. And if you think you can handle that in the future, you're not going to be able to do it. And as the world continues to get worse, we need to be sure that we're ready for the rapture. I was reading in James this morning before church about uh, faith without works is dead. In other words, if you say you have faith, but your life has no evidence of that faith, James says, yeah, I'm pretty sure you're not saved. And First John tells us that we need to make sure that. He says, yes, dear friends, we are already God's children, and we can't even imagine what we will be like when he returns. But we do know that when he comes, we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. And verse three, and all who believe this, what? Will keep themselves pure, just as Christ is pure. In other words, we have to live our lives in anticipation of that return. We can't live like however we want, thinking that we're saved, and when Christ gets in, when Christ returns, we'll get in by the skin of our teeth. No, the Bible says we need to, if we're anticipating his return, we need to be sure that we're ready for that. There's a lot of references to the word pure in our conduct. Philippians 1.10, for I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives, what, until Christ returns. Now, blameless doesn't mean sin-free. It means that when we sin, we ask for forgiveness because none of us are perfect. We all sin. But we live with the understanding that we want our lives to be as clean as possible when Christ returns. One commentary puts it this way. To be pure is to be free from sin. Live increasingly like Christ in a world filled with evil. In other words, do you live a better life now than you did last year, five years ago, 10 years ago? If you're doing the same thing that you did 10 years ago, you're not maturing in the Lord. If you're doing the same thing you did before you got saved, that's a problem. Because the Bible says when you become a Christian, you become a new creation. Your thinking changes, your heart's desires change. I can't explain it, but it does in an instant. You don't know everything, but you walk away from that prayer saying, I get it, I understand. And I wanna do something about it. So I'm gonna, well, two minutes. Question is, are you ready? Do your lives match up with what you say you believe? It's easy to say you're a Christian, but do other people know that? When we lived in Florida, it was a lot of, nobody's from Florida, everybody moves to Florida. No one's actually ever born there. When we lived there, we were on the, on the East Coast and most of the East Coast is New York City transplants. Uh, and most of them are Jewish. On the West Coast is Northern Michigan, those transplants. But in that area, if you weren't Jewish, you were necessarily Christian. Whether you went to church or not, 
It's just a delineation. You're either Jewish or you're not. And if you're not, that means you're Christian. But just because they call you a Christian doesn't mean you're a Christian. <laughs> just because you're not Jewish doesn't mean you're a Christian. And you have to live your life so that other people know that you are. Do people look at you and the Bible says we're a peculiar people. It doesn't mean we're weird. It just means we act differently than everybody else. That we live, we do things that the world doesn't do. Or we don't do things that the world does do. When people look at you, do they not know what's going on, but they kind of are interested in you? What do you, what's, what it is about you that, man, I, I want some of what you have. Why are you peaceful? Why are you joyful? What, why do you do all the things that you do? They don't understand. And that gives you an opportunity to tell them why you do it. And when we say, do your lives match up with what you say you believe? How you live should be exactly the same as what you say you believe. When the Bible says we need to be pure, that's what it means. That we live a little bit differently than everybody else. And so when people look at us, they see something that's different and they want to know why. So when people look at you, do they say, I want to know more about you. Why do you act the way that you do? Man, opportunity Talk about Christ. Would you stand as we close this morning? Close your head. Close your head. <laughs> Trying to get down by 12. Let's you out by 12. Close your eyes. Bow your head. No, leave your head open. But not so open that your brains fall out of it. Before we're Christians, before we become, become believers, we basically have a closed mind. Our mind doesn't want to accept the truth of the Bible. The Bible says that the enemy blinds our minds so we can't see, we can't see the truth. So when I say we want to have an open mind, we want to be open to the truth. Let me evaluate what you tell me based on my experience and based on what your word says. And then once I evaluate it, I can make a decision. And for those people who've made that leap to become believers, you open your mind enough to say, you know what, I don't know about this Jesus thing, but I'm gonna try it. I, I believe that what he's saying is true. And you know what, if his life has changed and that guy's life has changed and that girl's life has changed, I'm gonna think it's gonna change mine too. And then once you come to know Christ, you realize that because you had your mind open to the truth, God was able to transform you. The Bible says you're now a new creature in Christ. The old person's gone, and the new person's come. And you walk away feeling 100% different. Doesn't mean you automatically live a perfectly holy life. But your mind tells you now I want to. I want to do it right. But if you're here and you've never really come to that point in your life where you've ac accepted Christ as payment for your sin because we're all sinners. The Bible says for everyone has sinned and we've all fallen short of what God expects of us. But the Bible says that God gave us Jesus as payment for that sin. But it's just there as a gift. And you have to accept that. The Bible says as many as receive him, those he gave the power to become children of God. It means you can believe it, but you have to accept the truth in your life. You have to come to a point where you say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Please forgive me of my sin. Transform me from the inside out. 
and make me more like you. That's basically what a sinner's prayer is. But you have to do that, you have to want to do that in your heart. Not just repeat the words, but in your heart you want to do that. And if that's you, you want to do that. You want to see how God transforms your life. I want to pray with you. I want you to raise your hand. Hallelujah. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we know Christ. We thank you that we're not going to be here for the tribulation. But until that time comes, Lord, we know that there's a lot of things out there trying to distract us and keep us away from what you want us to do. We thank you for your blessings. We thank you as a nation. You have blessed us more than we deserve to be blessed. When we hear about all the things happening in other parts of the world, how believers are martyred and treated and just horrible things. Lord, we just, we don't, we're not worthy of the blessing you give us here. But Lord, I pray that you would allow us to use that blessing to further your kingdom, to allow us to appreciate you every day, Lord. We, every day we thank you for how good you've been to us. We don't take for granted your goodness to us. And we pray for those who are suffering, Lord, who are suffering for their faith, that God, you would protect them. It's easy for us to sing of the goodness of God when everything's going well. But Lord, I wonder how many people who are being martyred are singing the goodness of God. Help us to be mindful of that when we pray. We don't take for granted how good you've been to us. I pray as we prepare for this, the summer months and VBS and the outreach is what we wanna do and our new youth pastor, we pray your continued blessing upon us. We wanna be about your business. We wanna be doing good works. The Bible says we're saved by grace through faith, not of our own works, lest any man should boast, but we were called to do good works. There's things we do after we get saved that help other people in the kingdom of God. Help us to do those. Help us be ready at a moment's notice to step out for you, where you want us to step out. Help us to be, as we've heard for years, a lighthouse where people can come where they see truth and they see that we love them and care for them and that Jesus loves them and cares for them as well. Lord, I pray your blessings upon each person here, those that are at home, those who couldn't make it today, Lord, allow them to experience your blessing as well. We pray your continued hand upon us in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. And God bless you. VBS meeting in here? In here.